So it's Christmas. Are we feeling are we feeling the, the Christmas blues yet? I, I, I find that uh, Christmas like I'm 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 on Team Mike. I'm one of those people who loves Christmas. But as as the year kind of as the month progresses, don't you find it's like there's only so many breakup parties. There's only so many things you can go to before it's like I'm I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this. If you know what I mean. Um, here we are today, hearing again. Um, from the word of the Lord, something about the coming of Jesus. And I hope that our time together is, is refreshing for you because we've been doing something pretty cool, really. Um, we've, we've been looking at Christmas through the, the lens of messianic prophecy. And we're putting ourselves in the shoes of the people who were waiting for the first arrival of the Messiah um, before the first Christmas. And we're also doing that thing where we, we are waiting for the second coming coming of the Messiah and, and looking to how that means that we should be waiting for him today. We've got this dual experience of Christmas going on. Last week, Mike began for us with Isaiah 40, which amongst so many other things, tells us um, of the coming of John the Baptist, who would have his public ministry immediately before the first coming of Jesus' earthly ministry. And his role was to prepare the soil, to make sure that all eyes were looking in the right direction um, when the king finally came. Um, so that people would know. We read it in Isaiah 40. We heard it again this morning from Larissa. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and the uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain. This ministry of John the Baptist was, was captured in the famous Christmas carol, Joy to the World. We hear the theme, let every heart prepare him Room, And that was Mike's call to us last week. The Messiah, God's chosen and anointed one, that's what the Messiah means, has come and is coming again. And like those who worshipped him at a time before our own, we should be preparing for his arrival. It's a really good idea. That's how we experience this season of Advent. How do we do that? We, we make straight paths for him. Every valley be lifted up, every hill be made low, make straight paths in the desert. And so that means clearing away the obstacles in your life to his rule and reign. Get, get ready to meet your savior because he is coming. Live in a state of spiritual readiness. If there is something in your life which you know needs to be dealt with between you and the Lord, be it the whole of your life being laid down at his feet and in, in, in requesting him for his salvation, or is it some specific thing that's been, that's been niggling, something that's out of order, something that's out of joint, um, today is the day to hand those things over to him and to let his rule and reign in your life have its full effect. Now, what we're going to do today, is we're going to look at another prophecy from the book of Isaiah that comes just two chapters later, but it comes at this theme from a different angle. What this is going to do for us, it's going to help us answer the question, this coming Messiah, what's he like? It's a useful question for us to answer because when we start to consider what it means for us to make way for him, to make room for him, to prepare the way for him, the next realization that we have after that is, of course, that his arrival is going to come at a cost. Are you like me? When, when, when Jesus calls us to repentance, wouldn't that just be so much easier? Was it not for the fact that I'm in love with my sin and I grieve its loss? When, when, when Jesus calls us to prepare him room, isn't there a, a sudden anxiety that comes along that thinks, how could I be happy if God were to take this thing from me? If God were to take this, this thing that I've been using in his place for comfort and to 
and to replace it? How, how could life be worth living in its absence? When we say prepare for the coming of the Lord, we're saying take the parts of your life that are, that are not in line with his will for you and start to deal with them now before he arrives. Of course, knowing that he is here with us by his spirit, we're not alone. And when I say that there's, there's something that comes to your mind, I do not doubt where the Lord has already been speaking to you about this, even before you came here today. There are things in us which do not resemble Jesus. And if dealing with that was easy, you would have already done it. This is hard. Our thought process goes, to deal with this means I would miss out on insert your thing here. I won't have security or happiness or pleasure anymore. That's what I would be losing if I was to move towards Jesus. I would have to enter into my grief and my bitterness and, and open up that wound and let, it, let the boil be lanced. And that would be painful, unpleasant, uncomfortable, inconvenient, humbling, Take your word and put it there. And from our, the perspective of our, of our human flesh, that, that cost, that price of preparing the way for the Lord seems like too high a cost to pay. It seems like too high a cost to pay. If we thought that that was a good deal and that was, that was going to be an easy thing to do, wouldn't it just be so easy to compel ourselves to move in that direction? Why do we hesitate? It seems like too high a cost to pay. Better stay here with my familiar brokenness and sinfulness. I'm better off this way. Life, life can make sense. There's too much on my plate already. And this would just be one more burden. Am I the only one who does this? Am I crazy? I'm crazy. I'm cra it's just me. Okay. I'll go and preach to another church that, uh, that struggles with sin like me. I'm mocking you. It's fine. God in his graciousness announced to us beforehand not only the coming of the Messiah, but also described him and his ministry to us. And in seeing who he is and what he would do, good news, what we see in him is so precious, so life-giving, that the price of repentance becomes absolutely worthwhile when we see him accurately. We have reason to trust him, do you see? When he tells us to prepare for him through the hard work of repentance. One such prophecy comes to us in Isaiah 42. We'll be reading um, the first portion of this prophecy. It's known as the first of the servant songs in Isaiah. There's, there's a couple more of them afterwards. Um, remember, as, we, as we're reading Isaiah, we're reading the, the prophet Isaiah is ministering before the exile and he has got the worst job. When, when, when I talk with other pastors, we, we, we talk about how to have the ministry of, of, of Isaiah would be a faithful ministry and a rewarding ministry, but nobody wants it. Isaiah's job was to tell a people who would not listen to him that if you don't change, the judgment of God is coming and to announce beforehand the coming judgment, um, knowing that they would not listen. And then also um, to announce <laughs> the exile on the other side of their not listening and then what God would do to them after the exile, all of this in advance. And so before the exile even happens, Isaiah is now speaking to Israel of the words of the Lord as if they're presently in the, in the exile, waiting to be restored. 
And this is what God has to say to his people who are in waiting. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Um, Quick shout out, by the way. This prophecy, this prediction is Trinitarian in nature. You feel that? The father is speaking and announcing his sending of the second, the servant, whom he delights in, his chosen, who is going to come in the power of the spirit, all three persons of the Trinity cooperating in complete and absolute unity for your salvation. Isn't that comforting? Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice, and he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. What is God's anointed coming to do? He is coming to bring justice. Now, that word justice, um, that word has some connotations in the present which are different to what the word justice means in the writings of Isaiah. And so we need to be careful not to read into Isaiah our present times. In the writings of Isaiah, justice is a theme which is used a lot. And it's used to mean the, the correct ordering of the world into the shape that God created it to have. This is justice. God's rule and reign in the world and his people following him and being perfect. The destruction of all idols and all false gods, this is just. It is, it is good and right and proper that God be worshipped by all unopposed and that we keep covenant with him. This is just. God's coming servant has quite a large job in this prediction. He is coming to restore the correct order of God's created world and nothing less than that. He will not stop. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. This is the purpose of Jesus coming. Now, in putting the world to rights, yes, he is going to address many of the injustices that we are often so very concerned about. He will stop people from sinning against one another. But the justice in mind here is not primarily about us getting our justice. It's about God getting his justice from the world. And when he gets that, it just so happens that the world gets better. When God is in his right place in this world, when God is ruling and reigning unopposed, the world is better. The world is as it should be. That justice has, in one sense, been introduced already through the first advent, hasn't it? When when, when Jesus arrived, the, the angels announced to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased 
Jesus' earthly ministry brought justice into the world, brought God's rule, brought God's kingdom into the world. And yet, isn't there a very real sense in which this is yet to be fully realized? Don't we feel it every day? We are not yet living in the fullness of God's end times, eschatological promises. We are not living in the fullness of God's rule and reign. We still live in a world which is inactive, sinful rebellion against our God. But of course, we are waiting for a second coming, aren't we? At which time, God will finally rule and reign over the whole world without opposition. And so it turns out that part of the message of Christmas is that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Get ready to meet him. He will not rest until he has established his just rule over all of the earth, from the coastlands to the continents. The rule of Jesus will not be long opposed. And before him, every earthly power will bow. Every spiritual power will bow. To those who are waiting for God's kingdom, tired of the broken systems and the injustice of the governing powers of this world, that is good news. And to those standing against his rule, it should be terrifying. But Messiah is coming and he will not rest until he has established justice in the earth. Next, we get three specific descriptions of what the Lord's anointed's arrive, what the Lord's anointed will be like when he arrives precisely in his, his first coming, which is where this gets a bit more useful to us. There's, there's, there's three descriptions of him, and we're going to focus on the second two, but I'll mention the first one really quickly. The first is this, he will not, cr- he will not shout or cry aloud, his voice will not be heard in the streets, you see that one? And then the next verse, the bruised reed, he will not break, followed by that, the faintly burning wick, he will not quench. So let me mention the first before we move on to our focus for today. He will not shout or cry aloud. What is this telling us about him? Actually, what this is telling us about him is that the first arrival of Jesus, the rightful king, will not be like the arrival of the earthly kings in their pomp and their ceremony. The, 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 the practice of the day was before somebody important walked into the street, someone would walk before them and announce their arrival. Hey, everybody, the king's coming. Make way for the king. Make way for the king. Jesus' version of that was a prophet in the desert eating locusts. His, his voice would not be heard in the street. His, he, he, he shall not shout or cry aloud. No, his coming would be humble and unnoticed. Like, does it ever cease to be surprising when you think about it that the creator of all things was born in a barn surrounded by shepherds? And then at some point in time, an indeterminate number of wise men rock up out of nowhere just to confuse everybody because nobody knows who they are. Like, it's, it's almost appalling, isn't it? That, 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 that the one who, the hands that flung the stars into space entered the world through Mary. His arrival will be without the boastful hubris of human kings. It will be servant-like even. Isn't that the name that Jesus takes for himself? Whoa, 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 whoa. Did the God of heaven just describe himself as a servant? Yes, he did. Jesus' first coming will be, from the point of view of Isaiah, was, from our point of view, meek, lowly, far beneath his station. 
as the creator of all things. Interestingly, this part of the prophecy is completely fulfilled. As we are told that his second arrival will be nothing like the first, when he will arrive in the glory of the angels. All eyes will see, and every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is his second coming. Okay, let's put, take that one and put it aside. Now let's look at the ministry of Messiah. The Lord's servant, the one in whom he delights is coming to bring justice in the earth. And apparently, the bruised reed, he will not break. The Lord's servant is coming to deal with the bruised reeds. Picture it with me. I've got a picture of it there. If you, you don't have to try too hard. Picture a, a reed. Do you know that, that long, tall grass that, that grows by the water's edge? Straight as an arrow. goes straight up. Really, really, it's really tall. Now picture a blade of that grass, which is not straight like it should be. Halfway down the stalk, there is damage, a bruising, which warps the whole thing. Instead of standing straight, the reed is bent, frail, compromised. In this prophecy, the bruised reed represents us in our frail spiritual condition. We are the bruised reeds. We don't stand straight, but we are bowed and we are broken under the problem of our sinfulness, under the problem of the cursed nature of this world, under the crushing weight of the burdens that we carry, which are now beyond our strength to carry. The bruised reed has a fear that when it meets the one who is coming to bring justice, that we will be on the wrong side of that justice. That he is coming to break us, to tear us down. That's, that's one way to deal with a, a bruised reed, isn't it? A broken reed, to cut it off and let something else grow in its place. And so you and I, as bruised reeds, this fear is in us that when we encounter Jesus, it will be in his judgment. How merciful a prophecy is this, that that was not the purpose of his coming and is not yet the purpose of his coming. The Bruce Reed, he will not break. Hear the understatement that you're meant to hear here. Not only will he not break it, he will mend it. Jesus came into this world not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He came to bind up the brokenhearted, which means bruised reeds, fearful of being broken by his hands, encounter him and receive healing. Think of all the people in the Bible pushing through the crowds in order to just, just get close to Jesus in his first arrival to glimpse his face, to ask one question. Bruised reads all, and break them he did not. Rather, he healed the woman, bleeding, unclean, ostracized, unwelcome. What fears were racing through her mind as she reached out towards 
the corner of his cloak. Faith, yes, but also fear. What if he crushes me? What if he breaks me? Like all the others in his place would, if I were to do this. Have you been bruised by life in this world yet? Do you know what it is to be the bruised reed? Are you aware of your frailty and your weakness, the bent in your nature? And does this make you hesitate to go anywhere near Jesus? When you hear the call, prepare for his coming. Does that seem like a mountain which is so high that it's not worth even beginning the journey? I have good news for you. The anointed servant, in his humility, is here to mend you and to give you strength. He will faithfully bring forth justice, which means that God's just rule will be brought forth in you and out of you, Bruce reads. This is his purpose. His purpose in not breaking the reed is to set it right. Do you want to know what Jesus' agenda is in encountering you and and meddling in things and changing things? He wants to put you to strength. He He wants to bind up your weaknesses. He wants to heal your brokenness and your infirmity, and and to transform you to be the creature you should always have been, and by his grace can be. Do you not realize that no one has ever come anywhere near Jesus but by the road of the bruised reed? There are no other kinds of people in his kingdom. There is no other way. If we weren't bruised, but rather healthy, standing straight and tall and self-sufficient, we would have no need of a saviour. We would have no need of the Lord's servant. Tell me, weak one, if he has welcomed others in your condition, will he not welcome you also? Or do you think perhaps that your brokenness is too difficult for him to manage? Perish the thought. So, weak one, know this, the bruised reed he will not break, and so... Go to him today and find that he is merciful. Begin the process of repentance. The bruised reed he will not break. Rather, you will find him merciful. Isn't that good news? We have one last picture by which we can understand him. The smoking wick is a picture. The purpose of a wick is to get the fire going, but this wick is is not burning. Neither is it completely out. It's smoking. It's stuttering. It's not on fire. It's it's in that in-between state between between flame and dormancy, and it's kind of hard for us to see which way it will go. In this prophecy, the smoking wick represents our faith in its weakened condition. Our faith is the smoking wick, tenuous when it should be ablaze. Our trust of him falters and struggles. It is inconsistent. Sometimes it is there and it feels plentiful, and sometimes it is not. We are bold until boldness is required. 
We trust him until we meet with hardship which would require trust of us. Our faith is like a smoking wick. The smoking wick has a fear that when it meets the one who is coming to bring justice, when it meets the Lord's servant, that we will be quenched, snuffed out and put away. Like someone licks their fingers and grabs the top of the candle, not just put out, but but wet. Gone. But that was not the purpose of his coming. The smoking wick, he will not quench. We are meant to hear an understatement in that. Not only is he not going to quench you, not only will he not snuff it out, he will fan it until it becomes what it should be. He will take the wick until it goes from smoking to smoldering and from smoldering to a light and from a light it is set ablaze and even sets others ablaze. This is his purpose in coming to you. Jesus spoke with a father whose son was demonically oppressed. The disciples found that they were powerless to help. Jesus spoke with the father and he said to him, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. What a model for us is this man. This is the smoking wick. I believe. Help my unbelief. Tell me, when this father encountered Messiah, how did he find him? Did did Jesus respond to this man in judgment, looking on the candle that didn't burn like it should and cut him up? No. He healed. He rescued. He redeemed. He delivered. In his first coming, Jesus has arrived in order to faithfully bring forth justice. Smoking wick, you will be turned into a flame at the hands of the Messiah. Do you, do you find this principle in yourself that, that you, you, you are aware that your faith is so inadequate compared to what it should be? And, and in this knowledge, you find that you hesitate to, to come near to the Lord. You, you know that your faith has faltered and you flee from his presence. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Run to him, smoking wicks. Run. Let him set you alight to warm you again towards trusting the one who loves you. The bruised reed, he will not break. Faintly burning wick, he will not quench until he faithfully brings forth justice, God's rule and reign in you and in this earth. Prepare the way of the Lord. What is it that needs preparing in you? Which which part of you have you been hiding from him? Which, Which form of brokenness have you been sitting with, if not contentedly, at least decidedly, thinking that to do something about this would be too costly. And if we did not know who Messiah was, you, you could be reasonable for thinking so. But we do know who he is. We know what he is like. We know what kind of reception we are going to receive at the hands of the Lord's servant. 
And when his offer is so merciful, so gracious, so broad, how could we not accept it? Prepare the way of the Lord. Be made right with him today. Do not delay. This is the call of Isaiah 42. But says my fear, the cost is so high and I'm afraid. The bruised reed he will not break. But says my faith, I don't know that I trust him like I should. And if my faith is strong enough to obtain this healing, well, smoking wick, go to him and find him merciful. The bruised reed he will not break. The faintly burning wick will not be quenched until he brings forth justice. And that's a promise. Let's pray. Father, it is true that you, you, you call us to count the cost of following you. Count the cost. I think so often when I think of that, it means to me, count the cost of what I have to lose in order to gain you. That is part of counting the cost. But Father, how infrequently I think of counting the cost as meaning in the column of credit, what do I gain in following you? Lord, if I had eyes to see you as you are, if I had faith to believe the rich depths of your promises to me, how easy would repentance become? Lord, I am aware of my sin and less aware of your grace. Father, I do have faith, but not as I ought to. So today I pray that you would rescue me from both my weakness and my unbelief and give me eyes to see the Savior as he is. But would you teach my heart of hearts to believe and to trust that you are who you say you are and that your mercy really is new every day. Lord, I come to you and I pray that this season of the year would be used by you in my life to restore me to a right relationship with you, whatever the cost. Lord, because I have everything to gain. Thank you for the promise, Lord, that for those of us who are in Christ, you will never break us or quench us, but rather that you'll bring us to completion and to life. Help me to trust you, even now, I pray, in Jesus' name.